0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Fathers, we come again to your word from Peter. We would ask that you would now, by your Spirit, have your word do its work in our hearts. Show us Christ and help us follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen. So we're continuing in this section from chapter 2 verse 11 to chapter 4 verse 11 where we're we're being instructed on how to live out who we are as a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession and over and over we've seen that as those who are not yet truly home we are called by and empowered by God to fight against our own natural sinful desires and instead fill the places we are like Peter just prayed with good deeds that point to the beauty and goodness of our king and over the last three weeks we've seen that in particular situations so we've seen it in regards to the governing authorities a posture of submission while doing good honor all people we've seen it with slaves and masters and then last week even with wives and husbands and so Peter got particular to the people he was talking to now he's going to zoom out again and refer to all meaning all Christians who read this letter And he's going to call them to a radical idea. We've read this so many times that we might take it for granted, but this radical idea that when someone hurts them, they seek to bless the very person that hurt them. When someone hurts them, they seek to bless the very person that hurt them. So the calling is clear. In other words, the logic, what we're called to in this text is not very difficult. But doing it is very difficult. It's difficult in our own homes, in our own church. So why is it so difficult? And I think the reason is that it is so natural to revile. It is so natural to want to do bad when someone does bad to you. I mean, we have to admit that oftentimes it's just still our first instinct. In other words, we don't have to teach our kids to revile. If you have kids, you've been around kids, that's not something you have to have a lesson. You have to sit them down and say, here's how you fight over toys. Here's how you blame your brother or sister when they do something to you. Here's how you shift the story and and hurt other people when they hurt you. It's natural from the very time we can walk and talk to revile and do evil to those who revile and do evil to us. This is just who we are in our natural state. But here again, we have commands that are meant to help us become who we are, not naturally, but supernaturally in Christ we are a chosen race from all races a holy nation from all the nations a people from all the peoples to proclaim the excellencies of Christ once we had not received mercy but now we have been born again by mercy so that we can walk in new ways and so while this task is hard and while it's not natural it is possible for the supernatural people of God and if we are honest, we all have people in our lives that hurt us. Right now, there's someone in your life who has recently hurt you. It's the nature of a broken place. We have people in our lives who frustrate us. Right, we just want to pull our hair out with what they say, or what they post, or how they say it, or how they post it. Right, just want to throw them away and run away. Maybe you feel like someone thinks or speaks in ways that aren't fair, that don't really represent you. Isn't it so natural to go into frustration mode, to have bitter thoughts in those moments where you actually have nothing to do and you haven't distracted yourself and numbed yourself from your soul and you actually have a moment to think? It just goes to bitterness. just goes to frustration. Well, the flesh and the devil will conspire to make us distant and defensive. So as you hear this text this morning, I I don't just want you to try to wiggle out from underneath and say, well, it's not like I'm openly going around cursing people or reviling. I don't even ever use that word. But what does your heart do? What does your heart do? If this text is meant to help us become who we are from the inside out, what does your heart do? Is your heart, I mean, this is radical. Is your heart posture one that seeks to bless those who curse you? Is that where your heart runs? You just attacked me. You just reviled me. You just did evil against me. My reaction? How do I bless you? I, I just don't know that that's my Normal reaction. Is that yours? But maybe this word will help it be ours together. So let's look at verse eight first, where Peter's gonna talk about a blood-bought family. Here's what he says: Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So after a few sections on how to relate to the outside world, Peter's point here is that the people of God are meant to act as a blood-bought family in this world. This family should be different than the world and should be a place of Christ-like love on display. The world will know you by how you love one another. They'll know that you're my disciples. Let me put a scenario up for, for you, one that's totally Made up. Can you imagine a scenario where the church was not acting this way towards each other? Like imagine a pandemic, maybe, where they were sniping at each other. Maybe not very sympathetic to one another and how they were interacting. Not tender. Not showing humility in their conversations. Now imagine there was some platform where they could do that all the time and not even have to face each other and be isolated because of that pandemic. What if there was endless information and controversy being put out and stirred up that instead of researching and carefully engaging with one another, they took like a bazooka and launched at one another? Wouldn't that make a church grow weak and weary? Have you not felt that weariness in your soul? Even if you haven't been right in the thick of it, you've you've heard about it. Maybe you've grown weary because this is supposed to be a place that's different. This is the people of God. This is the blood-bought family. Sympathy, unity of mind, tender heartedness, brotherly-like love. Is that happening? Wouldn't that sour their witness on top of making them grow weary? Well, here's what Karen Job says about these terms that are used. A commentator, just to let you know, I didn't just want to say blood-bought family five times. Here's what she says, she says, Peter feels the freedom to apply to the Christian community terms most commonly used of family relationships. He's following the thought that their new birth generated by God the Father makes the Christian community into a supernatural family. One more time. Peter feels the freedom to apply to the Christian community terms commonly used of family relationships following the thought that their new birth generated by God, the Father, makes the Christian community into a family. It's what we are. This is the supernatural blood-bought family where people from diverse backgrounds and demographics become one somehow. John Piper in a seminar on 1 Peter 3.8 argues that all of these characteristics that we see here are emotions or dispositions of the soul. In other words, oftentimes in these arguments we just go, well, who's right? Who's winning? Who has the best argument? And here Peter would say it matters how you feel towards other people in this family as you interact with them. In other words, we can't be people that just say, well, we don't care about emotions and feeling and all that soft stuff. We don't need to care about what we, what's going on in here. It's gotta be right. We care about propositions. And of course we do. Propositions matter, our, our lives stand on them. But this proposition <laughs> in this book says our emotions matter. Our dispositions towards one another matter. You can be so right that you're wrong. So let's look at what these things are. First, unity of mind. This literally means to be of, of one mind, a one-mindedness, a commonality. Pretty radical term from people coming from so many different backgrounds and demographics to have one mind. So what should we have one mind about? I think it's about what we've already seen. So just to remember that we're elect Exiles chosen by God. We're people set apart by the Holy Spirit to be holy. We're people sprinkled with the blood of Jesus for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're people united in the finished work of Jesus Christ to help each other set our hope fully on him. We're people who gently encourage one another toward the truth of the gospel. We encourage one another towards holiness. The first disposition of our hearts towards one another is the very thing that makes us us a family, a one-mindedness in the gospel of Jesus Christ and a united commitment to help each other stay faithful in following him. If we lose that commonality, that common mind of the gospel of Jesus, faithfulness to it, we're all after him and staying faithful to him. We're going to speak into each other's lives and listen to each other so that we can do that. If we lose that, then we lose the family. So it makes us Christian. But I think Peter knows that we could take that one alone and just use it to beat each other up and hit each other over the head. And so he says more. What besides that faithfulness and that unity will he say? Well, next he says sympathy. Sympathy. This means to be with someone in their suffering and their pain. Means at a minimum to take the time to listen really well and seek to understand and walk with people in their pain and confusion. The An example I thought of this week uh, was, was my mom growing up. There were, there were so many times where uh, I did something stupid I was hurting, or and, and in those moments, she didn't she didn't. Beat me over the head for the truth, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't need that. I knew I was confused. I knew I was stupid. And said she would hug me, <laughs> and the tears would come. She entered into my pain and my confusion, even when I had brought it on myself. Do you seek to understand and suffer with people? What about if they don't agree with you? We still suffer with them. We still walk with them. What if they don't get it? Whatever that means. We still suffer with them. We still enter into their pain. How long before you give up and walk away? Jesus, just remember this Jesus entered into our brokenness and is a sympathetic high priest even in our weakness. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Right thoughts and perfect behavior is not a prerequisite to you being sympathetic towards someone. It wasn't for Jesus, and it's not for us. Brotherly love, these terms are calling us to act as brothers and sisters. Yes, we will squabble, but we won't leave. Yes, we will hurt each other, but we will say we're sorry. Yes, we will get offended and not get our way and even flat out disagree sometimes. If you're looking for a church where you never disagree, good luck. But we will not give up on each other in that disagreement. We will not disregard each other. We will not throw each other away. As we get angry and frustrated with a cancel culture, we will not cancel one another. We can't do that with brothers and sisters. Instead, we long for deep, true, sweet relationships as we are all seeking, fallen and broken as we are, to walk with Jesus. Are you eager to walk in self-giving love as your big brother, Jesus Christ, has loved you? Or tender hearts. This is an interesting word. It literally means generous bowels. It's an interesting study to do. What it means is from the deepest part in you, way down in the most inward part of your being, you're eager to do good to the members of this family as Christ has done good to you. Do you see how Peter's not just talking about anything outward? We can all play church. We can all say the right thing. We can all... Do the right thing. But he wants you to feel deep down in here. I want to do good to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Wasn't the love of Christ radically generous? Is that your deepest longing? Or a humble mind? This means to share a mindset of, of lowliness. I think Philippians 2 is the other place we could go to see this. I'm just going to read from Philippians Uh, the gap between Jesus and us that kind of humility is always going to be infinitely more than whatever gap you perceive between you and someone else can you follow Jesus here in actually counting others more significant I mean I just read this this week and just thought Oh, do I actually believe other people are more important than me? Do you actually believe that? Or are they part of your agenda? Part of what you've got to get done. Like They're more important. Do you approach conversations and interactions looking to humble yourself, to listen well, to lay down your rights, your agendas, and truly believe that it's not only what you say, but what heart disposition is there while you... Say it. Counting them is more important than yourselves. So these are the family dispositions of the heart towards each other. So what we're called to, can you imagine what it would look like to the world if this was happening? They might know we're disciples of Jesus (laughs) because of how we love each other. So don't be content with simply getting the facts right. Search your heart and see if your words and your actions and your interactions and your posts are filled and written and spoken with these dispositions of heart that will fill our church and our Facebook pages and the neighborhoods and the nations with the aroma of a family bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's become who we are as the people of God that looks and acts differently than the world. Peter is calling these believers to be a supportive, loving family as they walk through pain and persecution together. So the question is, do you have these soul dispositions towards the blood-bought family here at the South Campus? Did you mean it when you said, we do, in the covenant affirmation? They're a long question, so maybe you don't know what you said we do to, but go back and read them. See if you meant it. There's really your heart in it saying, Yeah, I want to do that. I want to be that. Point number two, a family called to bless and be blessed. Look at verse 9. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So this section has been about how Christians relate to suffering and hard circumstances around them, I think this is mainly here now switching. If Peter just said, here's how you relate as a family, love each other this way, strengthen each other this way, build each other up this way, now he's going, and now as a family, here's how you need to relate to those out there. They're coming. They're going to persecute you. They're going to come after you. At the time this was written, there were all sorts of crazy things said about Christians. Like there's crazy things said about us now, but I mean things like They were worshiping false gods, things like they were eating flesh and drinking blood, like really weird cultish-like things said about them. They were evildoers, up to no good. They were fools who believed in some guy who had been crucified. It was not a cool time to be a Christian. There was no cultural capital for being a Christian like we've so long experienced. It was a net loss. Their place in society was getting lower and lower, so you can imagine in the midst of persecution how easy it would have been to give to thoughts of bitterness and reviling. Right? Like We see this with Peter when the, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and he's like, uh-uh, I'm cutting your ear off. Like, that's the natural disposition. And here he is writing something a little bit different. In our day and age, our strange few hundred years of it being cool to be a Christian, it's slowly fading away for us. It's often said of us, things like this, like you're judgmental because you stand up against abortion. You're unloving because you stand against so-called same-sex marriage. You're fools. You believe in a God who created the world? You're fools. You believe a Savior had to come to die for your sins? You're hateful. Stop telling people they're sinners for just doing things that make them happy. And that's where we're at. Too often, the Christian response to those kinds of accusations in our day is exactly what Peter warns against. As, as, a, as a church, I think we've been a little bit taken aback at the quick cultural shift, and therefore we've been afraid and angry. And so we've kind of taken to just calling names back at them. Right? We tell them what we're against, but not what we're for. We post mocking statements or eye roll emojis at those people we think are against us. We fight evil with evil. We counter reviling with reviling, and we justify right. Someone's got to stand up for us. Someone's got to stand up to them. What does Jesus say to do? I mean, these aren't easy things. I'm wrestling with how I do this myself. But here's what Jesus says in Luke six twenty-seven to twenty-nine. I say. To you who hear, love your enemies. Do good. You hear that phrase in Peter all the time: Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So the question is: Jesus says, I say to those who hear, Do you hear what he's calling you to? Do you hear it with your heart? to all these things that are said about us. Instead of spending our time reviling and defending, getting angry and defensive about these things, I would say let's be the kind of church that fills the world with beautiful deeds of supporting moms with unplanned pregnancies and being a haven of grace for those who deal with the pain and shame of abortion. We can do both. Let's be a place that walks with those attracted to the same sex as the true family of God so that they have the love and relationships we all need as image bearers of God. We can do both. Let's just not tell people they're sinners. Let's say that we're sinners too, and people say, You're a bunch of hypocrites. Say, Yeah, you'll fit right in. I fit right in. We are hypocrites. We are sinners. But it's so sweet to walk with Jesus, to have a a Savior and a shepherd. When they call us evildoers, we fill this place with the beauty of self giving love so that they glorify God on the day of visitation. That is distinctly Christian. There's nothing more natural than doing bad to those who do bad to you, but can you take the step of praying for those who hurt you? Can you take the step of asking God to help them and change them? Or are you like Jonah, sitting there going, I don't want to go preach the gospel. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to engage them. What if you save them? be awful. I hate them. Can you take the step of finding ways to try and do good to them even when they've done bad or evil to you? Is there someone in your life right now that is difficult? Someone that hurts you? That frustrates you? Step number one is just start praying for them. Begin asking the Lord to work in their hearts. Begin asking the Lord for a heart that actually wants to do them good and it gives you an opportunity to do it like a heart that actually wants that, doesn't just do it because you're supposed to, but wants to do them good. We can bless instead of curse as those who know that we don't ultimately need to fight for control in this world because it is not our home. We can bless instead of curse as those who know that the people of God, born again to a living hope, can live in new ways like this and have an inheritance coming. We bless in order to literally inherit a blessing. Here Peter is again saying, be who you are. Have your hope set on your true home. Those who will inherit this blessing are those that are born again to a living hope to bless others who curse them now. In other words, those who bless others are the ones inheriting this eternal blessing and that's exactly what I've caused you to be born again to do. So bless others and bless. Receive your blessing, your inheritance. We're a family created to bless those who curse us always with our ultimate inheritance in view. Point number three, a family reminder and motivation. Peter says from Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's quoting from Psalm 34. This psalm is one where David himself was in exile on the run from those seeking to harm him and persecute him. So it's an appropriate psalm for the people Peter is writing to. And I think this psalm in this place in Peter functions simply as a reminder to the people of God that God has always been with His people who seek His face and He's motivating them to keep these commands. Do you want to love life and see good days? What would that look like in the midst of persecution? Psalm 34, 8 that Peter has already quoted says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So a life you would love and a good day for the people of God is defined by the presence of God in our lives, not the circumstances of our lives. Peter wants to remind these exiles about to go through hard suffering that God sees them and God hears them. When you bless those who curse you, there is no guarantee that they turn around and say, well, thank you for being so kind to me. Oftentimes they may continue to take advantage of you, continue to curse you. So what's the reward? (laughs) Why would you do this? Because God says he'll be with you. He'll hear you. He'll see you like he saw and heard Israel in Egypt and brought them out like he saw and heard David in exile and delivered him. Therefore, in light of the reward, the calling is clear. Keep your tongue from evil and deceit. Don't join in the gossip in canceling culture of this world don't fight evil with evil instead overcome evil with good seek peace and pursue it are you careful with your words are you careful with your tongue are you a peacemaker do you seek to make peace with those you're at odds against this is the calling of god no matter what the circumstances are. This is the calling of how God's people act in the midst of their enemies. Peter is saying, carry this out. Do this. Our God has always seen and heard those who follow Him. My kids um, are little enough that they still really struggle in their storms at night. And one know what helps my kids get through big storms at night. When I hear their cries and I go and I stay with them until it passes. Like I can't just go, hey kids, it's okay. Like we've had a hundred of these, right? You know you're gonna make it till the morning. They need to you know I hear them. And, and I'm with them. And in a much bigger way, God is saying to these people through Peter, follow Jesus through this storm. Walk as he walked, because of the new power you have as the people of God, and I will be with you, I will see you. I will hear you fill this place with a remarkable countercultural love for each other and the ability to bless your enemies that will show the world that I'm real. And I'll be with you. I'm your reward. I'll be with you now and forever. You will have enough. We will not look back on being a people blessing our enemies. We'll not look back and say it wasn't worth it. We'll look back and go, God was with me. He helped me. It was worth it. So now we want to act supernaturally focused on the word. This is still hard because it's so natural to join in the reviling and canceling culture we live in. We write this person off. We throw that article out there. We post demeaning things about this thing or that person. It will be a supernatural thing to actually have a heart disposition that seeks to bless those who curse us to pray for those who accuse us of things. So where do we go? I thought a helpful place to go would be right in Psalm 34 because Peter's already quoted it in this text. Beginning in chapter 2, he's talking about what's new about the new people of God, and here's what he says, quoting Psalm 34:8. He says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypo- hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We need to grow up. We need to grow up into our salvation. We need to grow up into who we are in this text here from Psalm 34. So let's connect it. Psalm 34 taste and see that the Lord is good therefore the verse that we just read come after it therefore walk in this way knowing here's your reward how do we connect those two we feed on the Lord we look to the Lord we feed our new longings as the new people of God we cry out for more of the goodness of the Lord we saturate our minds over and over again every few hours like a newborn baby if we need to We fill ourselves up on him so that we push all the junk food out. We seek to engage in every conversation and spend every dollar and use every minute and pour every talent he's given with our minds set on Jesus Christ. The supernatural word is the sword of the spirit that will pierce through our hearts and show us what's really there. The supernatural word is where we go to not be conformed but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And more than anything, the supernatural word reminds us that we have a savior we trust who's our example and that we want to fill this place with deeds that point to the goodness of who he is and what he's done. Don't you want people to see Jesus? He's not here anymore except through you by his Holy Spirit. So what do we want to remember about him especially in relation to this passage that we've just been in? Well what about 1 Peter 2:23? When he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We have to remember our savior. We've got to remember him gotta walk with him and how can we walk with him if we don't know how he walked i remember early on with my father-in-law i was considering ministry i don't even know if he remembers the story or not but i was asking him what is it like to be a pastor what is it like to walk into this hard situation and that hard situation he kind of let me shadow him and i'd go to these things just go that was weird that was hard that was different so I was asking him, like, what is that like? What are you doing? What's the experience that you're having in those moments? Because I'm sitting there going, uh. And he said, it's like I'm walking with Jesus, holding his hand, and always asking for his help. And I remember in that moment, my thought was weird. It's A weird way to say it. Now I get it. I mean, think about when you're most tempted to get angry or anxious. Where are you most tempted to get frustrated? What are you reading or taking into your mind that makes you want to revile? Replace that with the word of God until you can get to a place where you can genuinely seek to bless those who make you most mad. Like wherever those places are, whether it's Facebook or some news site or some channel, turn it off and replace it with the word of God until you can genuinely want to bless those who make you most angry. Remind yourself that Jesus did not revile even though he never sinned. Like some of the stuff people say about us, we deserve. Like we know we're worse than they're actually saying. Jesus never sinned and he never reviled and said he entrusted himself to his father. You can trust him too with difficult people. Now now put the the imagery I just gave you of my father-in-law in in your head. In that moment when you're tempted to go, I want to be mean to that person, I want to lash out, I want to do this, I want to do that. Just imagine that what you have to do in that moment is say, you wait here Jesus, I'm going to go do this one on my own don't want to do that you don't want to forfeit your fellowship with him now don't want to forfeit your witness to the world you don't want to walk somewhere without Jesus and Jesus never reviles because he didn't do it when he's here and he's not certainly not going to make an exception for you so don't let go of his hand we're a blood-bought family that was purchased by our savior who did not revile when he was reviled against but who for the joy set before him endured the cross we're a blood-bought family that can trust that there's joy set before us now too that we really will inherit the blessing of his eternal presence that we can trust him now in our suffering and we're a blood-bought family of elect exiles set apart by the spirit called to obey Jesus and fill these places with beautiful behavior that in the midst of suffering can only be explained if Jesus is real and living in us and among us. Like that's the kind of place I want to be where the way we act only makes sense if Jesus is real. I want to do anything in our own strength. I don't want to do anything not holding Jesus' hand. And just as he always has, God will be with his people in their suffering. He will hear us He will see us. He will be with us to empower us to show the beauty of Christ. He will work for our good and for the glory of his name as we love each other like Christ loved us and bless those who curse us because we know our ultimate blessing is coming soon. Let's pray. So Father, we know Natural inclinations, which means we know that it will take a supernatural work of your spirit to create these kinds of hearts in us. We know it will take a miracle, and that's what we're asking for right now. Glorify your name by granting that miracle among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church.